I've always thought that one of the strangest phrases in the English language is, I said to myself. I mean, who exactly is having this conversation? Yet it seems we're unable to imagine living without the idea that there is someone that is us, that is more than the stuff we are made of. But what if we tried harder to understand and appreciate not the addictive myths that make us feel different and separate, but the way we are the same as other animals? and connected through time and space to the world, the universe that surrounds us? That's just one of the questions we'll be exploring on the latest Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm joined today by Melanie Challenger, researcher and writer on natural history and environmental philosophy and the author of a wonderful new book, How to Be Animal, but also by the one and only Will Self, in my view, one of our greatest living writers. Now, Melanie, I kind of know why you're here to discuss your rather wonderful book, but Will, just explain to the listeners why you've come along. Well, Melanie sent me her book and I liked it. It's as simple as that. And I wanted to assist her in getting a bit of a more of an audience for her ideas because sadly I kind of missed the gateway for actually writing a review about it. So your podcast, Matthew, seems an excellent venue in which to assist with interrogating some of these ideas and giving them a bit more exposure. Great. Well, we're honoured to have you both on. There's so much in the book, I don't know where to start, but maybe we'll start with this, with the idea that in some ways, the idea that human intellect is the thing that makes us categorically different and qualitatively more important than other animals. Melanie, you think that's an idea that's been reinforced by the widely discussed goal of creating intelligent machines, that the very idea of intelligent machines highlights a peculiarity about the way we think about ourselves. Well, there's several ways in there. So the problem of understanding what makes us different is thousands of years old. We are demonstrably different. And our cognition is largely what does make us different, along with some of its manifestations, particularly our cultural behaviour. But the value assumption about that difference has sort of been baked in and isn't necessarily always even witnessed and certainly criticised or thought about critically. And what I think these new innovations in AI, the project to build, to synthesise intelligence, gives us the opportunity to do is consider, reconsider the way in which we've valued both our difference and our difference in particular as through our cognition. So it's only when you start to build a mind and synthesise a mind, firstly, that you start to find out how easy or difficult that is and question, in fact, what a mind might be. But secondly, within the project, what we have certainly seen to date is the idea that this is a progressive move, that to build a mind is somehow a grand project of some sort, an elevating project for humankind, and that in some way it might even provide an opportunity for us to live forever. So there's a lot of old ideas about sort of human exceptionalism that have been woven into, you know, often uncritically into the AI movement. And it provides us with an opportunity to consider whether those ideas are still useful for us, whether they're right, and, and where we go from here. Well, I wonder whether you've got any reflections on this particular aspect of the conversation, which is that what the debate about AI, the pursuit of intelligent machines, the science fiction about how one day robots will 
rule the world, become better than us. What that tells us about how we think about ourselves. Yes, and I mean, and it's gained extraordinary traction, hasn't it? I mean, it was fascinating to read James Lovelock's last book and see that he'd really gone belly up to ideas not dissimilar to Ray Kurzweil's conception of the singularity. He was close to that sort of thinking. And I am hoping, as we discuss Melanie's book more, we can probe some of the reasons why that should be the case, why there's a strange kind of confluence here between, if you like, the most extreme forms of what we might call techno-progressivism, and they often go hand in hand with the view that humans are also the animal that is capable of perfecting its own social and moral institutions, and this idea of artificially created intelligence. I mean, I'd like to put down as a, a sort of benchmark for you and Melanie the philosopher John Gray's opinion that if we could create an artificial intelligence, that it would rapidly become as irrational, poetic, and quixotic as any human being. Because I think that's a very useful insight, and it means that we can pivot away from being caught up in the particular worldview that I would call techno-progressivism to sort of be a bit more objective about it and say, well, what's going on here? We have really the first sense of, you know, fictions that are concerned with AI come about at the same time as the Industrial Revolution, and indeed not long before the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species. So it always seems to me that the quest for AI is a quest to complete this introjection of deism into the human being, to make humans into gods in that way. And surely the most godlike thing we could possibly do would be to create an Adam and Eve of our own. There are so many avenues that your wonderful book takes us down, Melanie, that I, I realise that I'm just picking on particular elements. of. But staying in this space, one of the things I kind of find interesting here is that actually on the podcast recently we talked to somebody who has written a book a guy called Cade Metz who's written a book about AI about the people who created AI and what's interesting of course is that in the development of AI there are arguments about different models different theories and the one that wins is the notion of neural networks so the idea of AI that triumphs is the idea of thinking about AI as being based upon the way that the brain works but of course, this then takes us to the notion of the brain somehow detached from the rest of the body. So to use Ken Robinson's phrase, this is the notion of the body as simply a vehicle for moving the brain from one place to another. And of course, that's simply not how we work, is it? And that's not how any animal works. Yeah, there's lots. <laughs> there's a lot to go in here. To return to Will briefly, I think that Within the project of AI or within, to a certain extent, particularly the kind of progressive ideas within modern civilization, we've sort of blended together solving the problem that we have, that our awareness presents us with, of the fact of our mortality, of the fact that there are lots of frightening things about being animal. And the mind is just one of many ways. The mind are separated from the body. So a sort of substance dualism where the mind is something separate that we could synthesize, that we could even escape into. We could become kind of cloud beings, if you like, that could live forever, that we could enhance, you know, which implies the mind is progressive in some way, biologically, and so forth. All of these sorts of ideas are, and John Gray has been excellent at pointing us to this, are forms of salvation. 
But there is also something in the mix here, which is that, you know, so when we talk about application, when we talk about, because AI isn't just a theoretical thing, it's an application thing, you know, they are trying to engineer a mind. And that engineered mind implicitly sits within a narrative of progress. And Ray Kurzweil is a good example of that, because he's often talked about it being the next stage in evolution. As does Lovelock now. I mean, Lovelock's latest book proposes that not only does he support now the strong anthropic argument, which we can get to in relation to Darwinism, but he also propounds the view that the entire purpose, as he puts it, a rather suggestive and salvational use of terminology of the universe is the conversion of energy into information. Always, I think, we're seeking a solution to the problem of being alive and to the problem of limitation. It is a great assault to the human mind and possibly has been for as long as, you know, you arrive at a mind that has the kind of mental time travel that we have. That's, you know, the particular kind of cognitive niche that we have developed, you know, in our social cognition as primates, as human beings. And, you know, it creates lots of problems for us. One of them is that we can track back into the past and we build our identities that are so precious to us and that we cling to. And the other, of course, is that it enables us to project forward to our death. And that's very frightening. So that sort of gets baked in. And Ray Kurzweil has talked a lot. And James Lovelock is getting on in years now. Ray Kurzweil has been very open about the fact that he doesn't want to die. He would like to solve the problem of death. So that's all in the mix. But also human beings, because of our particular kind of social cognition, we're hierarchical primates. We're group living primates. That's not inevitable within evolution, but it does bias the kinds of narratives, the kinds of stories that appeal to us. And I think that, you know, within that, we tend to like to rank things and we rank minds and it serves a very useful and a very practical moral purpose for us. We, in fact, structure much of our life through assumptions about minds and what you can and can't do to minds. And It's therefore not surprising that we favour any way in which we think we can control or enhance mind, because that's, you know, that's what we're primed for. Will? Yeah. Who is this we? (laughs) I mean, I was very struck that you, and it's not necessarily a criticism, but I'd love to hear you speak to this, Melanie, that you use almost relentlessly a we. And yet so much of your book contradicts the idea of a hard species barrier. And so much of what you say militates, to my way of thinking, utterly against the idea that, in inverted commas, humanity has any collective being or identity at all. So I I wanted you to answer that because it seems to me it's kind of integral also to what you're saying about artificial intelligence. And let me make my own view perfectly clear at this point. I think AI is a blind alley. I think all of this stuff is talk about fiddling while Rome burns. I think it is the fiddling that burning provokes. You know, it's no accident that the two wealthiest men in the world, these kind of modern Croesuses, are embarked on a quixotic program to colonize the solar system. They, in a way, intuit as specialists in risk quite how risky the situation is. But first off, who is this we? Yeah, it's an astute point, And it's one that I battled with quite a bit. You know, certainly within, you know, within philosophy, within anthropology, it's a bit of a sin <laughs> to use the term we, because it collapses too much diversity 
under one term. It makes too many assumptions for cultural differences, for individual differences. And as you point out within the book, when I look at biology, I try to push away from biological determinism. I point out that our biology is very important to us, but that we've often misunderstood biology, that we're creatures with a life cycle and therefore what we, we might be talking about when we're three is very different to the one we might be talking about in the sort of peak reproductive years at 30 or the one that we might be talking about when we get to our late stage of life. And I know this is something John Gray has sort of struggled with as well. It is a difficulty within big histories where you are trying to take on things that might matter to all of us without collapsing our complexity into an unhelpful generalisation. My unenviable task in this conversation is to encourage us to go down as many avenues as we can, even though we won't be able to travel down them as far as we might want. So I was reading the book and I was hearing the point about how in many ways we use a variety of mythologies to escape our animal nature and the reality that comes with the recognition of our animal nature. And I was delighted when I came across the name Ernest Becker because I admire his work as well. And also, I have a framework for understanding human motivation, which is actually incredibly similar to loads and loads of other kind of frameworks that are used in a variety of disciplines. But the difference is that whilst I talk about humans being motivated by authority, by belonging, and by, as it were, their kind of individual desire to be the best that they can be, fatalism is also an incredibly important part of the human condition. And it's missed out, you know, not surprisingly in psychology, where in positive psychology, by its name, as its name implies, doesn't talk about it. It's not in organisational theory that uses similar categories, but we never acknowledge fatalism. But as you say, it's an incredibly important part of the human condition. And I've come to the conclusion that one of the things that generates madness in our society, as Becker argued, is our unwillingness simply to accept our mortality, that we are running so hard away from that. And is that also, Melanie, linked to your thesis? Because you know, our animalness reminds us of our mortality in a way that we really don't want to be reminded. Yeah, and this ties into the we point as well. When I first started trying to get it, what is the struggle that we have with being animal? Now, to a certain extent, I'm kind of reverse engineering this. So I'm seeing the fact that we have forgotten that we're animal, that we're denying, you know, the fact that we have all kinds of constraints ahead of us, you know, in the human project, we can't live forever, both as individuals, but nor can we live forever as a species. The species isn't some kind of edifice, it's always in a process of change, it is processual rather than adamant in any kind of way. And when I started looking at that and trying to understand where did that start? And is that something that is particular to one kind of culture? Is it, you know, culturally driven? Or is it sort of, can we look prehistorically here? Is this, you know, adaptive? Is this in our biology? Is this something where the we can get very expansive, where it's something that is particular to our species, or particular to animals with our kinds of minds or particular to different stages of our minds. And mortality was a very useful one to look at. So Ernest Becker wrote in the 70s and he saw 
all of life as a sort of hero system in response to the fact that we're going to die, that it's such a threat to us that we build all of our systems and cultures are there as a kind of human hero worship to buffer us from our mortality. Now, you can take or leave this. It's actually given rise to a whole area of kind of psychology called terror management theory. And there's lots of sort of back and forth within the psychology field about you know, how much this is a specific phenomenon or not, or it's, you know, discrete range of other things at work. But there is a lot of compelling data across multiple cultures. So they've looked at, there are studies from Aboriginal cultures, from Eastern, Western, from, you know, animistic, Judeo-Christian. And what has been generally found is that firstly, people unsurprisingly perhaps do respond both consciously and unconsciously, to a prompt to think about death, to high levels of death in their environment. And that what human beings tend to do is certainly buffer themselves with ideas, with social groups. They solve the problem of death with group identity, really. And you can see that in lots of different cultures. And in that respect, while we are not all singing you know, with one voice, I think it's reasonable to say that most of us fear death and that that fear and our awareness of that fear has a considerable impact on us. And it is unsurprising that we've often sought to push away anything about our animal reality, because being animal, of course, prompts us to accept that we are wet, slimy, complex and ultimately mortal beings that will you know, dissipate back into the physical world at some point in time. And that's very threatening to us. So, well, I'm fascinated by what you think of the role that our fear of death, our individual cultural fear of death has in our search for immortality, whether it's the soul or AI. And I I can't help feeling that one of the problems of the decline of religion in societies like ours is that religion was quite a good place to take your faith. It gave you a way of dealing with your mortality, either the kind of notion of heaven, but simply just a way of dealing with the way that the world was and the way that it was impossible to understand. But now religion has gone. We've lost that repository of our fatalistic feeling, and therefore we have to try even harder to run away from it. I think you're absolutely right, Matthew, to put the F word there for fatalism. And I think a lot of people who come from secular backgrounds don't really understand that about religion. It offers both eternity and finitude in a very, very precise way. I just want to join the the love in on Ernest Becker because I'm a huge fan as well. And and, and I'd say I'd say, Melanie, that you can't take or leave him. You you have to take him. Because The point is, you may say, well, I don't really fear death that much, but you will find that all sorts of things that you do once you excavate them are quite clearly, you know, what Becker called immortality projects of one sort or another. It's like an onion skin. You strip them away and lo and behold, at the bottom, if you're fearless in that excavation, you'll find that your terror at annihilation has has hidden down there. And as Matthew points out, the one way we flip that round, and I've used the W word, and I wish I hadn't. The one way I flip it round, and I believe other <laughs> other persons who I believe are quite like me do the same thing, is particularly to project it onto these ideological constructs of which I would argue, and I think you do as well throughout your book, Melanie, but I would say that I think you're a bit frightened of taking it quite as far as you might, which is 
you know, liberal and technological progressivism is clearly an immortality project at a would-be species level. And indeed, I'd argue that the idea of humans as a species entity in a weird way relates to precisely that project. And I'd go further still, I would say that that immortality project and its obvious lack of fitness for any purpose at all is a devastating sign of our inability to cope. I've used the O word now, uh, <laughs> of the, the inability of those entities that I think may be quite like me to cope with the looming environmental crisis. I think the existential threat that's posed by global heating is so great that we're in the biggest probably period of denial that we've ever been in. I don't mind using the W word. It's breaking out all over. So I want to take that issue because I think there's one thing that I was surprised not to read in the book. I mean, there's so much in it, it's very churlish to identify something that wasn't in it. But that is the debate that is starting now to be recognised a bit more between those who want to focus on climate change, net zero, and those who want to focus on biodiversity. And I recently interviewed Jonathan Franzen, who's very, you know, uh, he has very strong views about this, Jonathan. He's, you know, he's gloriously fatalistic. I mean, in the sense that he thinks that, you know, climate change is probably got us, it's too late. And he, he notes the fact that we're still talking about 10 years to save the planet. And we were talking about 10 years to save the planet 10 years ago. And he wants us instead to focus much more on the things that we can do now concretely to save the species around us and in our environment. And he says this as an enthusiastic bird watcher. But it turns out, I've then spoken to civil servants and bits of government, it turns out this debate between the people who say what really matters is net zero because, and this is the critical point, it's about saving the human race, have a very different view from people who we might say, if you didn't understand this debate, were similarly environmentalists who are concerned with the biodiversity, for whom it isn't really all about the human race or saving the human race at all. And of course, this then turns into very concrete arguments about you know, policy, because obviously some of the policies we pursued in climate change, like fuel crops, have been catastrophic in their impact on biodiversity. So I was surprised in a way that that argument wasn't one that featured a bit in your book. I do look at, obviously, the troubled relationship we have with making sense of the duties we might owe to other species and things like that. I mean, you know, these are questions of morality. And morality is really scale dependent. And we don't often think about it in that kind of way. So we assume when we are talking about saving the planet, that there is a planet to be saved. But of course, you know, once we stretch out the timescales, nothing is going to save the planet. You know, none of us are going to be around forever. The planet is mortal, just as the solar system is mortal, just as the sun is mortal. And once you lift out to those sorts of scales, the human moral endeavour becomes absurd. So we can only really bring it back down to what scale do we want to look at moral action and how do we want to think about it? So... I think that there is a tension in part within the biodiversity and the climate crisis at the moment for a range of different reasons. But one of the fundamental reasons is that we haven't critically thought about why any of this matters. We're still very reluctant to, it's so obsessed with the science and allowing the science to talk. 
We haven't sufficiently talked about the underlying value systems and the framings that all of this is sitting in or the scales that we're talking about with our morality. So when it comes to if we're looking at a climate level, you start having to look at how species, for instance, are behaving, what a normal species population is looking like, what's a healthy abundance And for that, you need large data sets. So you need to look at, you know, let's say a seabird population and see what a, you know, what a natural or a healthy seabird population looks like and how climate might change that. And you build your policy from there. But if you're looking at what duties you might owe to a species that is sentient, that has agency, that has feeling and consciousness, which many, many of the species that are collapsed under the idea of nature do have, then you know, the way in which you would build policy would be much more intimate and would shift again. And within all of this is a problem about the underlying story. So I think human exceptionalism is a problem either for climate science or for biodiversity. You know, I think a lot of people who work within conservation of other species just implicitly value and care about them and enjoy watching them often for reasons they couldn't necessarily articulate all that well were you to put the question to them but it's there as an assumption but what they've had to do is argue often from economics argue for sort of the way in which these species provide services to the human project and it's still all couched within human exceptionalism I think fundamentally we just are still not doing the hard the difficult the subtle work of understanding what world we're saving and why we're saving it and it's only when you ask those questions you can try and think about what moral instruments you would use to do that and I just nobody wants to do that but it's you know it's a question that's left begging all the time I think. So well I'm interested whether you also recognize that there's something quite interestingly different about the discourse of climate change, which is often kind of, to use your for techno-progressive in its kind of tone, you know, big plans and the huge shift to green energy. And, it, you know, it, it's a big project for our politicians and our states. So, you know, it's a great achievement that human beings can have versus biodiversity in the word that I was like, glad Melanie used, which is conservation, which reminds us of a more modest, maybe small c, conservative kind of idea of what human beings should be about, which is protecting things which exist, respecting their complexity. Do you think there's something there? Narcissism of small differences, and both tendencies represent a delusion of adequacy, in my view. And I think the ghost of techno-progressivism haunts your book, Melanie. <laughs> you, you can't get over the idea that you ought to be doing something. You know, don't just do something, sit there would seem to me to be the lesson. And, you know, you have a lot of the information there, but the reality, it seems to me, is staring us all in the face, just as as some people date the beginning, the onset of the Anthropocene, the era in which humans are decisively altering Earth's environment to the extent that previous geological eras were. Some people think the Anthropocene had a thin edge that begins even with humans' use of fire, perhaps as long ago as half a million years. So I think the human tendency to erroneously 
ascribe to ourselves incredible power and agency, a will, is vitally connected, you know, and reaches a kind of crescendo with Cartesianism and, you know, dropping cats out of the window to see how, <laughs> how they'll land. It reaches a kind of crescendo in our division with nature. It's not without accident, of course, that you find the kind of levers that enable techno-progressivism come about exactly at the same time as this philosophic alienation from other animals occurs. And the truth of the matter is, guys, we're screwed. We are screwed. If you'll forgive my language, we have already <laughs> shat the bed. And, you know, Franson, bless him, who I was in correspondence, I did see as a like-minded pessimist. I call myself a joyful pessimist because I see no reason for despair in accepting that an anthropic solution to anthropogenic climate change is not possible. I absolutely resist that idea. But Franson is still bound up in a humanist, techno-progressive, ideological manifold as well. In his, one of the books, which you probably read, Matthew, he talks about meeting a conservationist in the Dominican Republic yeah. and talking about his, again, about this question of species diversity as against trying to impact actually directly on global heating. He comes up with this trope where he sort of says, you know, even if we were absolutely at the end of it all. If I had a, I think he says a Van Gogh painting or something, or a, I can't remember if it's a Van Gogh or a Titian, you know, that that cultural artifact would still be worth hanging on to, you know, even in, I'd chop the painting up and burn it for cooking. <laughs> I've got absolutely no time for that attitude at all. It seems to me that again is the ghost of a species identity that just doesn't hold up under examination. The peoples who could have who knew and understood how to maintain biodiversity and how to not overheat the planet were all animists, essentially. They were just animists. Animism, in my view, is a philosophy and a religion that is intrinsically bound up with maintaining equilibrium. And if you look at an example of, you know, until contact with the West of a successful hunter-gatherer society somewhere like Australia pre-contact, you see an incredibly subtle and evolved culture that is at one and the same time about an elaborate symbology and about practical means of surviving in harsh environments and not devastating those environments. So, Melanie, are you guilty as charged in the sense that you've chosen to write this book? In your first email to me, you talked about COVID and, and that implication was that there is an opportunity, there is a moment for a different kind of discourse. A lot of people have talked about a deeper appreciation of nature. I'm actually speaking to you on the first hot sunny day of spring. So are you guilty of what Will suggests, which is that in the end, you still believe it's possible to save us? Well, no. Okay. So, so I think, I think it, again, that's cleared that up then. <laughs> and that's all I'll say on the matter. No. <laughs> I think it's a matter of scale again. So on the large enough scale, Will is absolutely right that there's an absurdity here. He wrote a great essay that he sent to me that argues for quietism. So for the logic and beauty of sometimes accepting that you can do nothing and just live your life. But again, within that, if we bring the scale right back down to the individual, 
It is certainly true that there is a toxic and ultimately completely absurd idea that we can live forever, that our species will just keep progressing and evolving, that somehow we're going to outsmart the physics of the universe. And that's deluded and it can have dangerous consequences, especially if the people who are pursuing this have vast sums of money. It causes really maladaptive ways for us to behave if we're constantly running under that delusion. That, for sure, that's that's a real problem. And, you know, it does weigh on me, obviously, because the moral stuff is really bloody... It's really difficult. It's really difficult to go back, accept that, and then try to piece together what it might be to live a good life at the individual level. So I'm a mum, you know, this is my first book back in after 10 years on the kind of parenting coalface, if you like. And everyone who's been at home with their children for weeks, months, years on end, has that moment when this little consciousness kind of, and this goes back to Becca, you know, lights up, looks up at the sun and and figures out, you know, that things die, things pass, and that, you know, I'm going to die, they're going to die. I think probably the first horror for a lot of children is realising that their mum is going to die. And you were confronted with these questions and you see the beginnings of a psychology trying to figure out what it is to live a life with meaning and what it is to live well with other people and figure all that stuff out. Now, even if, let's just imagine, human existence has another 200 years on the clock, there's still going to be on that moral scale of just the individual life, a better or a worse way to enable that individual to flourish. So as a parent, a better or worse way to help guide your child through that and to enable them to flourish in their lifetime. And that's really the scale that I go in at. So, you know, a lot of the work that I do in the book is about getting us to understand how we can game our bodies to the sort of more affiliative, kinder parts of ourselves. Certainly worldviews are are better or worse at this. And, And Will spoke to animism. Now there are some problems there, you know, because human beings before they even really speciated as homo sapiens, were certainly in the business of taking out large mammals, for instance. You know, mammal sizes have been shrinking so that we're at the point, you know, where they're they're as small as they've ever been since the dinosaurs were here. And that's because we tend to do that when we move into new habitats. And we also tend to take one another out. So we can be very hostile within groups and even animistic, you know, much more egalitarian worldviews often involve a great deal of hostility within groups and that can be very violent sometimes which is part of our animal nature absolutely you know we're group living and so we have these incredible parts of our our whole neuroendocrine system our whole body is brought into service to help us to you know we have the whites of our eyes to track eye movement we have parts of our brains that are figuring out whether we're you know the intentions and minds of of those that we're watching and observing and and that can be brought into service largely through sort of thoughts and hormones and movements and actions and signaling that can be brought into service to cooperate with one another to build a bridge across a river to to help with the child rearing you know and so forth 
It can be brought into service to trade with one another, but it can also be activated to ignore those that it suits our purposes to ignore and to be violent and aggressive. And, and for me, the moral project, which I don't think has to go down a kind of deluded, progressive reinterpretation of evolution, I think once you scale at the individual, you can make sense of what it is to accept our mortality, but also to live a good life in our lifetime. So, well, I'm, I'm reminded here of Keynes in a sense, you know, that in the long run, we're all dead, but there is still work to be done to make people's lives as good as they can be, even if boom and bust in his terms are inevitable. Is that the moral project then, which is simply to make the journey to our ultimate annihilation one that is more pleasurable, more interesting, more loving? I don't have any, I mean, obviously it's impossible to turn back the clock and live like animists did in societies that were pre-industrial. That's not possible. I think that, you know, all of our system of thought and belief is an ex post facto rationalization of the potency given us by fossil fuels. My view of the Enlightenment is that it didn't precede the Industrial Revolution, it succeeded it. It's just humans' fatuity and absurd sense of, of omnipotence, again, a function of technology that gives us those thoughts. And I don't believe that morality is a universal at all. I think people have very different values, right and wrong, and not things that exist independent of human communities. And I feel under no obligation to school humanity how to cope with its either its species death or its individual death. Well, actually, I do. I do feel at a kind of individual level, which is why I'm responding to Melanie's work and I'm engaged in this podcast. But I think it's a rather futile enterprise. And I think that the problem is, Melanie, that you're trying to square a circle here. You want the good things out of civilization as you see it. But, you know, civilization is the domestication of the human animal. You know, just as you point out in your book, goats and sheep have smaller brains once they're domesticated, so do humans. So do humans. And, and we're domesticated humans. You know, again, to go back to the high Aboriginal culture, I don't think any of us could contain the wealth of information and understanding that Aboriginal adults have in their environments. In fact, we rely on forms of extended mind like the computers we're working on now to kind of bootstrap us through life. And we, we rely on an extensive infrastructure that has been highly deleterious to the environment, including all other animals in order to function at all. We're absolutely screwed without it. And I think we will see this increasingly because what we've seen with the pandemic is that you know you don't have to be Jonathan Sumption <laughs> who's gone completely tonto in order not to see that the response to the pandemic is that of a largely aging society panicky older society that can't cope with it and you know there've been huge unforeseen consequences that will be playing out for years in the way that we've responded to pandemics and and that's a relatively modest shock to the kind of global infrastructure that we've been dependent upon. And I, and I just sort of think, I think two things are at play here, if I'm honest, Melanie. One is, as a parent, I understand how you feel. It's been very difficult raising children and telling them that they're doomed. <laughs> but I've done that. I've actually done that. I never soft-soaped any of my children, the older ones are now in their 30s, on that question. I told them all the way along because I knew. And it is difficult and it is hard to tell people that they can't 
live. But I mean, is it any harder than telling children, no, don't smoke cigarettes because you'll get cancer like everybody did in the second half of the 20th century? And the other one is, yes, no, there is no universal morality, you know, of any sort at all. So look, we've run out of time and I'm, I'm oh, afraid God, I'm, gonna, I'm desperate I, to respond no, to that. I'm, I, I, <laughs> I'm sure you are. Well, maybe I have to have a second round or something, but I'm going to take up the last two minutes asking, I'm afraid, a, t- a terribly superficial question. But nevertheless, one of the things that's that's lovely about the book is just the way that you remind us of how wonderful animals are, other animals are, and the things that they do and the ways they communicate and ways that they respond. And, and so I just want to ask you a question, Melanie, which is I have a lockdown puppy. Now, there's something, I don't mean, I, I, it's kind of interesting, this whole lockdown puppy phenomenon, but we'll put that to one side. But now being around an animal, right, and growing to love it, it feels like it should give me an insight, you know, and I read your book and I think I need, I need to see the affinity with this, with this animal more. But I find it impossible because I only have two ways of thinking. One is a kind of Disney-esque anthropomorphizing of the dog. Oh, look, it's looking, it looks just like a, oh, when it puts its head to one side, that's, oh, that's, you know. So I either do that awful nonsense of trying to recognize its humanness, as it were, or there's the kind of instrumental behaviorism of the dog trainer, which is to treat it like a kind of Skinner project where I just give it food in order to encourage the activity as I want and don't when I... Is there another way? Is there, you know, is there a different way I can look at my dog that will somehow help me with my animalness? Well, it will. And it gives me a chance to just punch back at some of the confusion, I think, that can sometimes be with sort of moral systematizing and universal ideas about morality. So what's really great about looking at your dog is that when you're anthropomorphizing, it's pretty much the same thing that you're doing when you look at your partner and you're probably anthropomorphizing them as well so you know you're drawing on the same parts of your brain that you know are there primed to recognize facial expressions so we've got lots of science on this now the way that dogs you know and we don't know what quite came first in the long domestication process whether they were already very expressive or that you know over time they're sort of human-like expressions helped with the whole communication process and both dogs and humans benefited from this. Either way, what we're doing is we're always anthropomorphizing other humans. We're always looking for signals and signs. We can never know what's in any other mind. But actually, if you work with the expressions of pain, of fear, of I want to go out, I really need a pee, all of those sorts of things that we have to do with our kids are exactly the same and work really effectively in our relationship with our dogs. We normally know from their facial expressions and their behaviours when they want to go out, when they want their food, and it usually maps directly to what they do want. We don't, in some sense, need to know what really is going on in their mind and, and whether they have any kind of concept here. In the same way, we don't really need to know it with our babies. It works. What's also really beautiful is that when you look at your dog, you'll get a little oxytocin spike. So oxytocin is the is the cuddle hormone. So it's the same hormone, organic chemical that gets released when a mother breastfeeds her baby, for instance, and when we're in bonds really of any kind. And it helps to focus our attention. It helps us to be more attentive to signals. So it basically, it helps to increase those sorts of effective ways of paying attention to one another and responding to one another. You'll get an oxytocin spike. And what's really awesome is that so will your dog. So Will, is this the pathway to some notion of, isn't it moral for me to want to understand what my dog wants and to want to give my dog 
that. Is that not some basis for a notion of morality, which we might say everywhere? Is there any kind of culture in which not wanting to understand your pet dog and not wanting to give your pet dog what it needs is anything other than immoral? I'm sure there's plenty of cultures in which, you know, eating your dog with respect <laughs> is, is enjoined on, in certain yeah, circumstances. Yeah, I walked into that. You walked I? straight into that one, Matthew. <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing is, Melanie's quite right. You know, my dog's just left the room, actually, and with some sort of disgust with the direction the conversation was taking. I mean, knew he was going to be canned any moment. <laughs> I mean, to build on Jacob von Wexkuhl's concept of the Umwelt, the life world of the animal, the thing is, the life worlds of dogs and humans, we know overlap and we know this genetically. They are a little bit human and we're a little bit dog. And you shouldn't worry about anthropomorphizing your dog at all, exactly as Melanie says. You shouldn't, don't go the Skinner behaviorist route. That is a bit mad. If you want an enriched and happy life with your puppy, it isn't a pretense that it's a person. Also, Melanie, you know, I, I mean, I have spent the last 10 years working on a trilogy of books to try and kind of establish this in, a, in an dramatic and literary way we do know what other people are thinking we know what people other people are thinking really well most yeah. of our social conventions and taboos are designed to prevent telepathy because it's too worrying for the kind of hierarchical societies we live in so no don't worry about it matthew dogs are persons they unquestionably are and they're bright they're very intelligent animals well, I hate to finish it there. If listeners are particularly enthusiastic about dogs, you could also listen to the interview I did with Naam Chomsky a few months ago, which was interrupted by a very his very fierce dog barking in the background. <laughs> uh, just one of the many pleasures of hosting this podcast. Melanie, Will, thank you so much for spending time with us. As I'm sure the listeners can appreciate, we could have spoken for several hours more, but do read how to be animal it is a, a lovely lovely book i um, i just found it completely interesting. it's one of those books it's a rare thing and actually this is true will also of your books i'm not just being nice to you but it's true of both of you i once said this to will about one of his books i only allowed myself to read a certain number of pages each day because if i read more pages than that i knew i was glossing over i was not fully focusing and that's the kind of book it is so thank you both for joining us thank you thank you it's a pleasure That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 